All right, Heather. A through Z, pick a letter. Q. Oh, Q. Okay, Q. Yeah. So it's going to be uh, the questionable statements segment. Okay, this will be interesting. <laughs> like how I just thought of that off the top of my head. Yeah, I do yeah, like that, yeah. Pretty much. So I guess a few years ago on Twitter, this guy really thought he uh, he kind of wound up some people. He really thought he did. So he was complaining about the idea that Biden was suggesting a $15 minimum wage. He said a $15 minimum wage leads to $31,200 a year for 40-hour work weeks. He said the starting salary for a beginning teacher in Texas is only 33600 He's like saying, so a person with a minimum wage job should be making almost the same as a teacher with a college degree does. He's like, does that make any sense? And I, I mean, I, I get like, I, he's trying to like one up people and with that, but I'm like, why are teachers making that fucking low? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's what blew my mind with that statement. Like teachers only start at 33 K. Holy shit. That is terrible. And then we wonder why our educational system sucks sometimes. Yeah. Like, that just sounds like the worst. You have to deal with all these, like, little kids and their shitty fucking parents. And you only make 33K? Damn. Yeah, that's a bummer. And you've got, like, parents and... Special interest groups coming into your classrooms telling you like what kind of like what kind of books you can even have in your classroom. And then on top of that, they got rid of the tax credits so you can't even claim school supplies that you buy because your school district won't even buy you the basic fucking things you need to do your job. And you used to be able to count that on your taxes if you were a teacher and they got rid of that. So they don't even have that no more. It is bonkers. Wow. I just, oh, that's crazy. I was just like, that is the weirdest, like, self own ever. He's like, really? You think people working at McDonald's need to make as much as teachers? I'm like, how about you fucking pay teachers more, dumbass? Like, Jesus. Just honestly, I've known people that, like, decided, like, they did schooling to be a teacher and then decided financially to go into a different field. Because it paid more because they had to take care of their family. And that's really sad that like it comes to that sometimes. Yeah. Yep. I've known some people that did a a similar thing. So yeah, they should get paid a lot more than they do, especially it's a super stressful job. And a lot of times you're in no win situations with kids and parents and stuff like that. And, you know, they, they often have to truck on and do the best job that they can. And it's, uh, it can be very difficult, but then it's not only just that difficult part. It's also 
the the rewarding part. You know, if their attitude is better and they're more focused and they're making more money and they've got more resources, then you you would think that would lead to children being taught better, <laughs> that children would be more receptive to what's being taught, that um, it would it would allow for kids to have a better experience as well. I don't think that just impacts them. It impacts how they teach. You know, I think all that stuff goes hand in hand and boosting morale and all of that kind of stuff. But what do I know? I mean, I won't say how much I make, but I make I make a decent amount above that, like a substantial amount of money more than that. And that's still not enough to get me to do a damn thing outside of work hours for the most part. Because at least when I do, I at least get overtime. You know what I mean? I at least get overtime when that happens. And they're expected to do all this shit in like grade papers and create lesson plans and all this shit outside of work on top of all that? Yep. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Where's the overtime for that stuff? Yeah. And then... I know people are going to be like, well, they only work, you know, like however many months it is, whatever. Yeah, because they provide an essential service to our fucking communities. It's fine. They get the summers off. It's fine. I would have zero problem ever with any teacher making the same amount of money I do, if not more, because they probably should make even more than I do. And then also get that much time off. That's fine. It's an essential service to our fucking communities. Yep. Like, it's just, it's preposterous. Especially when you want people to risk, like, that's the other side of it, too. You want, especially children, to respect their teachers. But then when they get paid like this, you know more often than not, the parents don't respect the teacher. Because it's all weirdly tied into how much money you make. So parents are more likely to not respect teachers because they know they get paid like shit. Therefore, they're going to tell their... That's going to rub off on their kids. You know what I mean? Like, I remember working at a Timpanyaki restaurant as a chef at one of those. And there was somebody... It wasn't at my table, but it was at another chef's table. Like, somebody told their kid, like, you need to make sure your grades are good or you're going to end up you know, doing this, pointing at the Timpanyaki chef. Like, motherfucker, you're wow. here eating here. You're eating that man's food. That's terrible. Like, what would you do wow. if there weren't people that wanted right. to cook for a living? I mean, exactly. you deem it a good enough quality, like, you know, thing to want to fucking eat the food that that man makes. Right. Like, why is it good enough for you to eat and pay a substantial amount of money for? Timpanyaki restaurants aren't known for being cheap fare. It's rather expensive food. And you're willing to pay that much wow. money for somebody that you consider like a lower quality person than you. I don't get it. That's why this... Yeah. This is what happens when you choose Q, Heather. I can go into more. <laughs> you know, I guess I was asking for it. If you want it. more questionable mm-hmm. statements, I don't know. Maybe this might only offend just me, and that's fine. 
because we here at Cinema Slayers Podcast are pro slut. So it just, you know, made me think of the podcast when I heard this thing. So there was this other podcast. It's it's the same uh, woman that got famous on Twitter and TikTok because she was like, you know, what value does a woman over like 120 pounds offer or whatever? She was some stupid weight like that. She was like, what do they even offer? Like, how do they even get guys like they can't offer anything? The one that said they don't deserve a guy that makes six figures or yes, something like that? Yes, that woman. Because they have nothing to offer. Everybody kind of generally knows that that video, like that little quote thing that this woman said. Well, they had some guy on their podcast and they asked the guy, they were like, hey, guy. He's like, yeah. And, you know, he's one of these alpha male, like, you know, I'm a man. So, like, women need to meet my level because I am, a you know, a man. So, my importance is intrinsically higher uh, type of guy. Sure. And, but he, they were asked him, they were like, all right. So, would you want either, like, you had to choose between two women. And they were either a woman that's only slept with three guys, but she has an OnlyFans account. So does that or a woman that does not have an OnlyFans, but she slept with 50 guys. And that guy was like, oh, man, that's like, you know, you gave me just two impossible choices. I can't possibly choose either one. <laughs> like, it's just oh, like, how do you even do that? So they started bargaining with the man. They're like, OK, but what if it was only like 20 guys, but still no OnlyFans? He's like, well, that's better. Like, that's more, you know reasonable i guess and they were just like i know it's so difficult i'm like that is the easiest question in the world to me either or (laughs) if one of them are interested in me and i'm interested in them and it's reciprocated like that either one sound fine yeah i was just sitting there thinking in my head what does it matter (laughs) <laughs> what does any of that matter? How is that going to, how, how, it, how is that at the beginning of getting to know, so how is that going to affect anything? You know? What if uh, they have an OnlyFans and they've slept with 20 plus guys? That's fine too. <laughs> like what would the guy have said at that? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you'd be like, oh, well, that's automatically the one I'm not choosing. Yeah. I was just like listening to that statement. Like I I didn't realize who it was asking the question when it started. You know, so when they asked the guy that, I was like, yeah, either. And the guy just started like hemming and humming and being like, oh, I don't, oh man, no, I just, how do you even choose either one in those conditions? I'm like, how don't you choose either one? I agree. (laughs) How? (laughs) I stopped having like, Early, early when I was younger, I used to have that talk with my prospective significant others. You know, the talk, the body count talk, if you will. Um, I think I stopped doing that even like five years before I got married. Like, or before I met my ex-wife. You know what I mean? Like, I had stopped doing that even long before that. Because it intrinsically just didn't matter. I'm just like, it doesn't matter. Like, who cares? But yeah, I just, it was one of those things I'm like watching. That. I'm just like, what the fuck is happening to society? It just makes me go back to last week, like simpler times. 
Well, because the thing is too, like no answer that someone would give is really going to be fully okay with somebody. Like you can have too high of a body count or too low of one. And either way, you're just like, someone's going to be like, oh, I don't like that. You know? So it's just kind of like, it, it, yeah, you're, you're going to have a, a lose-lose situation either way just because somebody is going to be on one of the ends of those things for somebody, you know? You're not lose-lose with me, Santa fans. <laughs> I do not discriminate either way. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying with that because if you don't have enough partners, then maybe you're not any good at it. You know, maybe what's the, there's something must be wrong with you because you've only, you've got too low of partners. And then if it's the other way, oh, something must be wrong with you because you have so many partners. I can, I totally get where you're coming from with that. Like, but what would be his problem with OnlyFans? I I wonder. Just the sheer fact that someone else might have seen, or just the fact that multiple other people could see that woman naked. Okay. Even okay, though OnlyFans doesn't. I love the confusion on Jess's face. Is like, <laughs> that sounds dumb that someone would. <laughs> Do you know how much of a kudos that is for somebody like me? That like just other people in general think your woman looks so fucking good. They want to pay money to just look at her. That is fantastic. If she wants to be with me, I'm like, fuck. Yes. I take that as a huge compliment. <laughs> Like, that's just, like, personality-wise, like, how I am with it. I'm like, that is fine. Like, hey, it's your body. Do whatever the fuck you want with it. I mean, I'm hoping you're not doing self-destructive things. Like, I don't necessarily want my partner doing meth and or heroin. You know. But I guess there's a time and a place for people and things. But I'm just saying, like, if if that's what they choose to do with their life and all this other stuff, yeah, power to them. I'm cool with that. And on top of that, like I said, if they're making a ton of money from it, that's even better. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's just the, the thing is, is that all these little. These deal breakers and all of these little rules and the things that my partner must be able to do or not do. The thing is, is that anything can be abused. Anything can be a, a, a problem. Anything can potentially be bad. Sure, OnlyFans is all right as long as somebody isn't obsessing about that stuff, or as long as somebody's not. You know that can be a negative too. It's not a universal positive or negative. It just depends on how the person treats that and what the person. You know, there can be too much social media stuff. Also, you know that can be a problem too. Um, The the sleeping with a lot of partners. I mean, unless there's some sort of psychological or something, you know, there could be other things that could come up that maybe impact sex or not. That might have to do with mental health and all that kind of stuff. But the, but the activity just on its own is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. You kind of hit it on the head. It all depends on the person's personality. You know what I mean? And what exactly is going on? You know? Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head, though. It's if there's a mental health aspect to it, it's the sleeping with people isn't the deal breaker. And the mental health aspect isn't also necessarily a deal breaker. Like, 
it's you know yeah. it's there are multiple like layers to it like but just like trying to like delve it down into like that simple of a thing of a prospective partner the two most important things you could possibly ask somebody on a first date is body count and only fan status yeah <laughs> as if those things by themselves mean anything I mean, that that just seems so dumb to me, but I guess I'm just not this person who cares about that stuff or has, I, I don't know, man, that that's just so opposite of what I think and believe. I guess I just can't comprehend it. I just can't, you like, know, it's, but it's, if it sounds like there's a problem with that individual, like, their their ego won't allow them. If it sounds like that might be an internal thing, more than it is, mob like I, an know, insecurity on their part. Yeah, basically. some sort of insecurity with them. Something with them that they. It feels like it's something going on with them internally that they can't have a partner that engages in those things. Well, there's what it that, sounds like to me. I mean, that it, it, when you root it out, it's extreme levels of toxic masculinity. There's the other yeah. insecurities. There's misogynistic mm-hmm. issues with it. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that. I mean, especially because those are the type of guys that are, you know, they'll be like, well, I can fuck as many women as I want. That's fine. Men, men are supposed to fuck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But then they also act like they're just honestly like they're running around and fucking nothing but dudes. Because if you really think about it, if men are supposed to fuck, but you don't want women to fuck too much, well, you're going to run out of resources to where you can't run around and fuck as much as you want anyway, because you, then you don't want the women getting too high of body counts. It's a weird system that they don't ever actually think about on a resource relationship on actually how it would even work. But they like to think they're highly intellectual motherfuckers, and they're really not. <laughs> I mean, it's the most regressive fucking 1940s fucking bullshit ever. Yeah, it, it just it all just kind of goes back to that common denominator of uh, this male need to control women. That That's what it feels like to me. It's just all back to that. Really? I don't know. That just, that always seemed like, that's, throughout my life, that always, that's always seemed like a very boring proposition. Like, having somebody who's, like, subjugated to me or submissive to me in that regard, like, that just seems kind of boring in a partner. You know what I mean? Like, in a significant other, that whole ideal just never intrigued me or sounded good or anything because then, honestly, you you have, like, you, within yourself, for a very selfish reason, You've got no way to grow as a human being with that mindset in those types of relationships. You, even if you want to look at it, you don't even want to look at it on the perspective of the other human being. Look at it completely selfishly. You can't grow as a person with those types of relationships. You will internally stagnate yourself because then essentially there's no challenge in any aspect of your life, because your relationships are on built on submission. Nobody grows 
from having people be submissive to them. They stagnate. So even if, like I said, you take out the other side, and I'm not saying you necessarily should, but I'm just saying if you really break it down just even on a purely selfish level, like these people think, because if that's what you want from all the people around you, you're being inherently selfish and narcissistic within yourself anyway. You just don't grow. And that's boring. That's a boring life. It sounds like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Nailed it. <laughs> it had to happen. It had to happen at some point. Yeah. You know how long we've been doing this from... intro and I've been trying to figure out a way to shoehorn that? Took me 20 minutes. Finally got it in, huh? But I was just going to say, but when you come from a society that just has a long running tradition, really across the world, there's just kind of been this tradition of controlling women and that's just been okay. You know what I mean? That's been okay for a long ass time, bro. So really what you're saying is less of the norm. The norm usually is control them, you know? Sad truths on the Cinema Slayers podcast. Thanks for picking Q, Heather. You've made us all sad. You know, hey, I was I was trying to mix it up. Ugh, now I've got to think of something for all these letters every time you say something. Now it's that. But I mean, <laughs> what will you say, Justin? I mean, that is an insanely excellent point. I mean, that's been an inherently worldwide issue. Yeah. For too terribly long and then you know the sad thing is is i wouldn't say a big chunk of the world but i mean at least a sizable chunk has been moving forward with it and 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 progressing and 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 you know trying to end that type of thinking and yet so much of the world is also not doing that yeah i.e the united states Yeah. And I mean, there's been some progress and things and you can see um, those thoughts and ideals against that are popping up more and more and more people are starting to believe that and, you know, you and announce that and preach that and stuff. But man, that's just that that's always going to be a tough one, man. It's always going to be a tough thing because it's not only just grounded in like tradition and beliefs and stuff. In some people, it's grounded in their religious beliefs. In some people, it's grounded in, you know, it's got that has that those types of ideals are just so grounded in the way that people have lived for for centuries. Like it, it, that, you know, you'd have to you have to think about what it's going to take to overcome that. Like something that's just been normal for so long. And then, and then, and now there are people like, they'll say that when they see these opposing ideals, like, well, we shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be about controlling women or anybody and, you know, independence and, you know, trying to look at, you know, equal pay for women versus males, et cetera. When you're talking about any of that stuff, there are people that are out there speaking going, well, 
this is against what a woman should be. We don't, we're, we're trying to teach women not to be women anymore and all of this kind of stuff as if like being controlled and being submissive defines them. You know what I mean? It's, it's crazy, bro. Like when you hear the opposing views, like against that progression, it's well and, interesting. And the sad thing is, is there's, like you said, Justin, there's just a, a a very sizable chunk of our society that really truly define a woman's role as just how by how submissive they are in general to everything, to like their own husband, their fathers, you know, their family, society as a whole, to their coworkers, to this and that. I mean. It's where you get into that whole that whole thing of, you know, when you look at characteristics that companies look for in, in men to promote them, when they look at the same things for women, they change the yardstick with it or like the, the goalpost with it because it's like, well, those same characteristics that make men successful, they're considered negatives in women. You know, like if a, if a guy you know, more or less commands authority, you know, he commands authority. He, you know, has that ability. Or if a woman does it, she's bossy. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. then I've, I mean, I've gotten to the point now where, you know, when you realize that you've internalized some of that stuff throughout your old life, even if it's just through other things, like, uh, like I've, I've said before on this, I, I was watching Suits, and the last couple of seasons of Suits, uh, what's her name? Uh, Catherine Heigl was on the show. And she ended up getting a bad rap in Hollywood. She was considered confrontational and ungrateful. You know, she made comments about, you know, knocked up when she was in that, talking about how she ultimately didn't like like the movie or her character in the movie because her character was, you know, just kind of considered, you know, just nothing but nagging and serious. But, you know, the, the Seth Rogen character and all the other people, they got to be fun and funny and silly and immature, but they couldn't have her character exhibit any of those things, you know. So, you know, she thought that it was a little too one-sided that it's like, oh, let the boys just be silly and immature, but a woman character has to be serious and studious and no nonsense and all these things. And, you know, she ultimately didn't like that and she was considered confrontational with other things. And then, so then you kind of internalize that. You just hear all these reports and stories and behind the scenes thing and people talking about that stuff. And then also talking about like the fact that like, you know, people, I mean, the, it, ultimately anytime anything like that happens, they more or less also end up saying that they're not as talented as, you know, what everybody thought they were or all this other stuff. But then, like I said, I saw her in suits and I'm just like, she's fantastic. And then I started thinking about like, why didn't I like Catherine Heigl before? You know, and you start like going through your mind and like through things. And I'm just like, Oh, it's because of all these other things that people said. And I'm just like, what if they, those weren't like your typical, like what if that wasn't her being confrontational? What if it was her actually just standing up for herself on set? But because yeah. she's a woman, it's considered confrontational. 
And then I'm thinking about it, like what she said about knocked up. Is she necessarily wrong? Like if you think about the, the context of the movie and all this other stuff, it's considered this great comedy, but like her character was intentionally unfunny the whole movie. Like they really, and it's almost like they, I mean, I'm not saying they went out of their way because it was her playing that character, but in general, that's how the character was written. And you know, at the time, Judd Apatow and, and Seth Rogen and all of them were like kings of comedy. You know, everybody wanted to be in one of their movies because if it was a comedy and they were making it, it was going to be critically acclaimed. People were going to love it. So yeah, you as an actor, you'd want to, if you want to like expand your horizons and not, you know, be known for nothing but Grey's Anatomy your whole life. Yeah, you would, you would jump on that to be one of the main roles in one of their movies. And then that's the character. And she, you know, it's, especially with the amount of improv, improvisation and things like that on those sets, you know, maybe you think, well, it's written this way, but you know, maybe once it's all said and done with improv and everything else and like just, you know, running with scenes, it won't be that way. And then it's exactly what it was. I I mean, it was just one of those things I'm like, you know, and that's on me. Maybe I internalized just the stereotypical woman stood up for herself. So in Hollywood, that's a negative. And I just, you yeah. know, internalized that hearing all those stories about her. Because. Well, and I'm sure there's also going to be people too that, speaking of Sydney, <laughs> that are going to be on Nev Campbell about her whole thing of her thinking she's too good or whatever, you know, there's going to be those conversations about her not returning for this movie when all she really did was stand up for what she actually deserved to have in the first place. So I don't care, you know, how much money they were offering her. It was not enough. Right. Sydney yeah, fucking Prescott. <laughs> if she yeah, says it's not enough money, totally. it's not enough money. Like it's, it's, it's that simple. Like, and it's not even like, like it's not, I just feel like it would be, yeah, whatever she asked for was earned regardless because she is that franchise. <laughs> like, so I just feel like it, it, people are just going to be like, oh, she just she's too good now and better than everybody. That's why she wants more money when it's just ultimately like I put in a lot of work. Like I basically, in a sense, I don't know if she thinks this, but she's carried that franchise. Like, why would she not deserve more money for that? You know, if she doesn't think that she should. Right. Because she has. <laughs> for the sure. thing is, is I guarantee yeah. you, she probably was not asking for even a dollar more than like a male would have been in the same type of situation. It had been like six movies or five movies. You know, it's lower budget. So, you know, you know what the constraints will be. You know what I mean? Like the screen yeah. movies aren't high budget movies. You You know what I mean? Yeah. She knows that. She's been in fucking five of them. She knows what the yeah. budgets are for these fucking movies. And I like guess. anybody in the Marvel universe, if they would have asked for that, like it wouldn't have been weird. Like they, they're, you would think that they would think that was reasonable. Well, you know what I but mean? But I mean, like, I guarantee you, she was at, she would, she would have probably, she was probably asking for the exact same amount of money that any male actor who had been in five movies, even if they were all like just $50 million budget movies, I guarantee you, she's asking for the same amount of money that any guy who in the, that exact same situation yeah. would have been asking for. You know, not even a dollar more, just the exact same amount of money. And they just went, oh, I, we can't possibly afford this. I mean, you know, the last movie was, you know, $50 million yeah. and only made like 300 and something, you know, million in the box office. 
So it was only made seven times its budget. We can't possibly afford to give you a $10 million raise. Right. Like that would be the equivalent of Keanu Reeves saying, hey, I need more money for John Wick 4, even though he would never ask for it because he's Keanu Reeves and he would do it for free because that's him. But like it would be like asking him or telling him like, sorry, you're not worth what you're asking for, even though you're the lead and just carrying everything. Or if it like The Rock had said, hey, this is my fifth movie of this. Um, I want this amount of money. Nobody, nobody would have batted an eye. They would have been like, okay, fair enough. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And I think that that's not only true for this profession, but I, I've seen that in other professions too, you know? Uh, I mean, especially it kind of, you, you're making me think about conversations I've had with some friends and stuff like that about wrestling and stuff. And, um, you know, in the rumor mill and stuff, they were saying that one of the reasons why Sasha Banks left was because she wanted to be paid as much as the top women at the WWE and couldn't get what she was asking for and stuff like that. And a lot of dudes kind of came at her like, man, you know, why, why, why does she want to get this much and this, then the other? And they just kind of were. I saw a lot of just online fans, if you will, kind of dragging her down for even asking for it. And I was like, uh, she should ask for it. And all I could think was she should ask for that much. She has been one of the top women there that has really changed, really raised the bar for women's wrestling in the WWE. She was right there with the other ones. With, with Becky, Charlotte, all of them, she was right there with them, doing the same thing as them, long story short, raising the bar for the women's division there. So I felt like she should get paid as much as them. You know, she should. Nobody, but, would, say, nobody would say a damn thing if AJ Styles asked for more money. Yeah. If AJ Styles or Brock Lesnar or any of them asked for more money, they, nobody would say anything about it. So I think... It happens to them all the time, you know, and, and and they and they're looked down upon just all the time. And I feel like men do it a lot when it comes to women and making comparisons and stuff. But they never talk about the hardships that they have to face or just the unfair playing field. Like I was talking to I remember this reminds me and I'll stop talking about wrestling, but like, but, but I feel like it relates so much because I remember having a conversation. I want to say it was last year with some friends of mine, you know, people who are friends who I consider like friends in the wrestling business. And one of them was kind of going on this thing of women can't perform wrestling as good as men. And that, and, you know, and that's why the there's a disparity in all of this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, well, let's break that down. Um, why do you think that is? Well, because, you know, when, when they train, they don't go as hard. And he started saying all of this, like, just crazy, like, you know, anti-women kind of stuff. And I was like, but dude, if you start from the beginning, who was training them as hard? Back then, they weren't even required. Like, like they were just being picked because of their looks. Like, like they, they weren't the the training, the priority to train them 
wasn't even the same. It, 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 the, the men weren't training them the same way because they were probably being manipulated. They were probably being like from the beginning, it, the, playing, the, the playing field was not level. They had to fight to get a lot of those same opportunities. They had to fight to get a lot of those, even those women with, the, with those wrestling skills today. And, and, and I mean, and I was telling him, dude, a lot of them are good. I've seen women perform at the same level. I've seen women steal the show from Ben on these wrestling shows. I've seen it many well, a times, you know? I mean, and I'll a say lot this. of times. Just real oh, quick, go this goes directly with what you're saying. WWE's Royal Rumble was very recent. I thought the Women's Rumble stole the show. Like, personally, when I watched it, I thought the Women's Rumble was the best match of the night. Well, there, there you go. And it happens, and it happens a bunch. And this idea that they can't perform to this level or whatever is in some of these guys' heads, I had to explain to him, dude, the training, when they started, how they started versus how men started, it was a completely different thing, man. They weren't trained. The, the priority to train them wasn't even the same. I was like, dude, you know how it was at WWE for a long period. They were going out there and, you know, they were having bra and panties matches in the middle of the show and all of this kind of stuff. Their wrestling wasn't even valued the same. So how would they, how could you possibly say that the training they were getting was equal, was fair, or everything like that, when they weren't even asked to do the same kind of wrestling that men were doing. Like, it, it, it's so unfair to just say they can't do it at the level as men. That they've never been, they have never been given the same opportunities as men in pro wrestling. And a lot of those opportunities they have gotten, they made them happen. They made them happen because they wouldn't shut up. They were determined to wrestle as good as the men. They decided to go out there. No, we're not going to wrestle like this. We're going to go out here and put on the, the same show that they can and show we're capable of this too. They had to do that. They had to push that forward. Nobody was doing it for them. Like with the men where it was just expected and we're going to give you every opportunity to do that. It's never been fair. They've always had it harder. And like, it, it was funny that it took me like, saying that to them and giving examples and stuff for them to even see that, you know? Uh, so I feel like it just happens to them all the time. And I bet if you go through any profession, you will find examples of exactly this, of men saying, well, women this and not as effective this, and they don't get that. Dude, it's never been fair for them, bro. Well, to They're just probably working harder than you, man, because yeah. they had to. You know, because they're already they're already these preconceived things that they have to face that a man just doesn't. You know, but we just don't. Just to swing this back to movies real quick, um, there was a quote from a casting director about I want to say her name is Adelaide uh, Hainel, um, one of the main characters from uh, a portrait of a girl on fire, or a portrait of a lady on fire movie that came out, I want to say last year, or two years ago, uh, Fringe Lady. Um, but they were talking about her. And it was a casting director says that she has, she has a well-deserved dead career 
after she protested an award show that was giving an award to Roman Polanski. So, yes. So the whole issue is, you know, she protests an award show in in her industry that was celebrating a literally convicted rapist. And it's not like he served his time in jail, paid his penance to society, and has since gone to move forward and do all these other things. No, no. Guy's never been to jail. He ran away. Never been punished. Never apologized. Never gave a fuck. And she's like, hey, maybe we shouldn't celebrate this rapist. And these people are like, well, you were dead to us then. Right. Yeah. Just that's like to say she deserves a dead career because of that. Like, what? Yeah, but I mean, that just directly ties into what Jason's saying. I mean, it's really even and it's funny because how many people call like Hollywood like this liberal hellscape? Like it's not. It's nowhere near as much as everybody no. likes to think it is. Yes, mm-hmm. some people in it are outspokenly liberal. Sure. The industry itself, nowhere near. The industry is the same as every other fucking thing out there. Like, that. just to go back to what you were saying, I mean, it's, yeah. She deserves a dead career because she's like, hey, guys. Let's not celebrate the rapists. And the French film industry went, how dare you? You are dead to us. Yeah. Yeah. Like people don't understand how all of those things, even when you're not thinking about them, even when you're not seeing them, it even affects their jobs when they have jobs. Like, um, I remember this, this just came back, a memory of this just came back because um, just when you were talking about that, and this is back to movies and TV and stuff like that, but I remember looking at one of those special, like, um, bonus, the, the little bonus things that they do on HBO Max, like after episodes and stuff like that. And I remember one for uh, um, House of the Dragon. And it was that episode where with uh, Renera, where, um, you know, she goes off with Damien and then everything starts happening. And then the the brothel and all the lies and stuff like that. And I, man, I wish I remembered the female that was talking, but it, it was a female that directed the episode. And she was talking about filming it from a female's perspective and trying to like, make sure that it came off as it something enjoyable for Rhaenyra. Like it was supposed to be like this sort of like adventure for her and the, and the enjoyment that she was feeling going through that and stuff like that. And I remember her saying it dawned on me when I was thinking about how to film this, that I had never seen a scene any uh, any sex scenes or anything like that 
shot from a female's perspective. Like I never even seen them. Like she had to sit there and think and she was like, I don't know if I've seen a scene or any scenes like showing that from like a female's perspective. So she really like had to think about it and consult other women and talk about it with other, you know, people she trusted and stuff like that, because there was nothing to reference when she was thinking about how she wanted to film it, how she could relay those feelings, how like, even that was difficult because there had just never been that, you know, everything she remembered had been shot or written by a man. So even that was a hurdle, just thinking about how to film that stuff. And I mean, that's something that you don't even think about. But when she said that, I was like, wow, that's really, it's crazy, but that is like the truth, you know? Yeah. And it's little things like that that just people in general don't think of. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that as being an issue. But, I mean, I'm willing to believe that just for the sheer fact that I've never actually even thought about it. And especially when you're put in that instance of like, oh, well, let me just hit up these people that have done this before. And then you're scouring through things going, shit, it's never happened. (laughs) Yeah. And we still have to talk about a fucking M. Night Shyamalan movie. God damn it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. I guess let's move on. With the sadness. Hey, Cinema fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. I'm Sterling, and as always, I'm joined by Heather and Justin. And tonight, we are going to talk about what we like, didn't like, and everything in between with the M. Night Shyamalan movie, Knock at the Cabin. We will go spoiler-free recommendations and scores, and then into a more spoiler-centric section with time codes in the description of both the audio and the YouTube video to allow you to jump around if you so require. Also, just side note, the reason for the long delay for the theme song is because my mixer has been going crazy for the last few recordings and just going off whenever. So I thought I hit the button and it just didn't even go off this time. I wouldn't even hit buttons before and shit would go off. But no, I hit the button this time. It didn't even go. And I'm like, I hit it. I'm just kind of waiting. I'm like, what the fuck? And I had to hit it again. Maybe the cats are playing tricks on you. They're not. Not this time. I mean, Daddy right. is in my lap right now, see, but she she does not play tricks. If any of my cats are not playing tricks, it's this one. She's the least tricky of all my cats. Unlike that, M. Night Shyamalan. 
with that, Heather, what are your spoiler-free thoughts about Knock at the Cabin? Um, oh man, this is a weird one for me because I didn't, I didn't hate this movie. Like, I know that's like a strong thing to say in front of Sterling, who hates Shyamalan, but I, um, I didn't hate this movie, but I also didn't, I can't say that I loved this movie, you know, like. I feel like there there was up to a point in this movie where I was like, this is interesting. This is interesting. And then I feel like more than anything else, the movie f- starts to get very anticlimactic um, to a point. And so it's kind of, I check out in what's going on in the story a little bit earlier than I would like to. But I do think there's some really strong elements to this film. Like I think... I think the acting across the board is great. Um, I think Dave Bautista is solid. He's very solid in this. He really is. He's he's great in this. I have no issues with anything he did with his performance. Um, everybody. I mean, Rupert Grint. I mean, you've got uh, Jonathan Groff. Like, the, there's some really solid acting that happens across the board in this film. I just feel like the way that the story is drawn out and how it plays out in general is very lacking at the, at least towards the latter half of it. I would say that the, it, I feel like it drew me in very quickly with like the opening scenes of this film and it, it kind of moves along quickly with the story it's telling, like it gets to certain points fairly quickly but then it kind of drops off a little bit to where I'm just like, I, I don't know. I feel like, especially with other Shyamalan films, like there's something about where you feel like there he's going to do something towards the latter half of the film that just grabs you. Um, and I feel like this is one of the films that he didn't really do that in for me. So I didn't really have any like, necessarily satisfactory feelings about the ending of this movie but at the same time I have seen worse Shyamalan films I have definitely seen better but I have definitely seen worse (laughs) Um, I think it had good elements I think it had a lot of potential to be like a really great film if they had kind of done some elements of it a little bit differently but it was a it was fine it was a fine film I wouldn't say it's a great film. I would say, I mean, I probably leaned more towards liked it than didn't like it, but it's really kind of very close to the fence for me on that. Justin, what are your spoiler-free thoughts about M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin? Knock at the Cabin. Um... Uh, I think that if if it were if I could sum it up in a sentence, I would just say I thought it was a good movie. I, I don't think it's great. I think um, um, if it was a little stronger, maybe I could say that. But I do think it is a good movie. Um, out of the Shyamalan movies I've seen. I, honestly, I think that this might wind up being one of the better ones. I, I think it actually is. Um, 
he didn't do, he did a, a lot of the things that he normally does that I don't like. I don't think he did it in this film. Um, you know, if you're looking for some big super twist, um, I, I don't, I don't know if that, the, the, there is one to a degree, but it's not in the way that you think it's not in the way that he normally conducts himself. Um, so I'll, I'll give him some points for that. I, I didn't feel the overindulgence of himself in this. Um, I, I don't really think I got that vibe from this. Um, and I'm not the most religious person. Uh, I think that one thing I can say about this film is that it definitely, that there are definitely some religious undertones and things like that, um, which is not always my cup of tea. But if there is going to be a story that kind of pulls from re- religious undertones and religious themes and stuff like that, I found this to be more enjoyable than some of those films, you know, I felt like this was, uh, for the most part, I think it, 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 it kind of grabs you right away. Kind of like what you were saying, Heather, but I thought it was really intense. I thought that there were, that he was able to capture a lot of intensity in the scenes. And a lot of that, I think is because of just the acting like Batista, this is definitely his best acting role to date. I think that what he had to do here and the part that he was playing here, I really think that this really showed that, that Batista man, like we were already saying it after the glass onion, when we had our talk about Batista and comparing him to the rock and stuff like that. But man, after seeing this, now I'm kind of wondering, is there anything that this man can't do? Like this role had a lot of layers and it was really heavy. And this person that he played kind of had to, man, there, there, there are so many things to this character that he played. And, and like, I mean, I think that if I were to elaborate, it would be kind of spoilery. So I won't, but man, this Leonard character, there was so much to this character. Like, not in not only in just like story form what what they were giving you but i really think that there was a lot to the character in the acting like having to put one face forward but you could feel that there was this other part of it too that you could feel that there was this other part of this person feeling like they're doing these things but they really didn't want to like and sometimes that's really hard I think to portray on screen, um, depending on the role and depending on the actor doing the portraying. But I thought that Batista did a really good job. A lot of these actors did a really great job at that. Um, so I really think that when the, when the scenes needed that level of intensity and there needed to be, and, and, and the scenes needed to have some levity, because a lot of this film is dialogue, you know, a lot of this film is just characters talking and trying to reason through this just crazy situation that we're in. So to me, the acting has to carry most of it. 
um, in, in those scenes. And I think that every actor really showed up, but Batista is the one really that I think that carries this. I think really a lot of this is um, grounded on his performance. And I think that he really brought it here. I think that this is the, the role that really gave him the most responsibility. And I think that this, this lives or dies on his performance. And the, this movie lives because of him. You know, I feel like he really, that's fair. Uh, he really brought his, the, the best of his powers that we've seen of him so far to this film. Uh, uh, to M. Night Shyamalan's credit, the film is well shot. I, I think that it, it was very well shot. L- like the, the mood that he was trying to get across in every scene, I felt like he did that whether it was the cinematography or him just kind of playing with different angles or the tracking shots that he was using following certain characters at certain times. I really think that the the gravity of everything that he was trying to portray, it came across in how he shot the film. Um, so I liked all of that. Uh, I kind of knew right away where this was kind of going. Like some of the things that it reveals at the end, I did know what what he was getting at and where he was going with it and different things like that. Some of the things that I was thinking, like I looked at the four characters and I and and in my head I made an assumption like, huh, I wonder if they're this. And that was exactly what they were. Um so none of that was surprising to me in that way. Um, and I think that the the film does play like as, as you're peeling it apart and everything like that. And when you get to the end of this, um, the, the, there's sort of this back and forth of, is this true or not? You know, is this um, coincidence or not? Is what these people are saying is, is it the truth or not? And is there really any evidence to support that and stuff like that? So all of that, all the back and forth of that and what the characters are doing and everything like that, you know, all of it sort of mirrors this sort of test of faith. You know, I think that that's really what the film is about, you know? Um, And I think that for that message, this it the this it comes across. I think the story and how they told it and how they get you to you're rooting for characters, but at the same time you're like, why are they doing these things? But at the same time you're like, okay, I believe these characters. But then there are times where you want to believe the other characters, and I think he did a really good job with that with executing that back and forth. I really think he did. I think he did a great job of that. And as the story is going, you're learning about some of these characters. You're seeing them in other scenes and he's developing the characters. So I think by the time you get to the end, you understand what everybody is doing. You understand where the characters arrive. And it feels like he accomplished what he needed to accomplish. And I think that this movie will hit you in a powerful way just depending on where you stand on certain things, you know, 
I, I really think that that's at the heart of the film. That's what it's about. So I don't know if it hit me um, as hard as maybe it would maybe somebody who's a little bit more on the religious side. I think that maybe it would hit those people harder, but I still found the, the, the lessons and the whole thing about faith and believing in something bigger in yourself and stuff like that. You know, I I found that stuff to be okay. You know, I, I was fine with kind of what this movie was trying to say. And I thought that it was effective in his storytelling. And overall, I didn't have a bad time watching this. You know, I, I felt in t- I felt that it'd be intense at certain moments. I thought that certain moments, like it captured your imagination and you were like, oh man, that was, that was crazy. Or, oh man, you know, like I thought every scene was effective in getting you to feel for the characters for the most part. And I thought the performances were strong. So for me, there's no way that I could say that the movie was bad. I, I don't think the story, the, the, the story wasn't bad enough for to, to have conflicted with anything. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple, man. <laughs> really? I, there's not too much for it to be bad from that standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint. And the acting is really good. Probably some of the better acting I've seen this year. You know, so far, the movies we've seen, or at least I've seen in January, probably some of the better acting that, that that I've seen so far in some of these movies we've watched this year. So it gets points for that. Um, and, and, in a, and in a lot of ways, for this being sort of a, you know, religious story, faith story, belief story, um, the whatever you want to call it. I think all of those themes are kind of there. It's probably one of the more unique stories I've seen about these themes. So I think I can say that too, you know, so I think it gets points for being unique. So overall, yeah, I do think it's a, it's a good, dare I say it, it's a good Shyamalan film. Uh, it, It is not one of his worst ones, man. I think that when you line them all up and start listing them, I really don't see how this one isn't kind of like in the, in those upper tiers because boy, he's had some stinkers and I don't think this is one of them. Dave Batista. Great. Acting. Good. Movie. Boring as fuck. M night Shyamalan. Typical as fuck. Recommendations and scores? <laughs> yeah. Recommendations and score. I'll start it. No. 25 Dave Batista's only fucking reason to watch this fucking movie out of 100. Uh, Justin, go. Yeah, I recommend it. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was well acted. And I think that there will be people who could get, get something out of this. I thought it was a, a, a much more moving story. It felt personal 
to M. Night Shyamalan. It felt a little more personal. Well, all his projects are personal, I guess. But this felt like he was, I don't know. It just felt like he was on here, man. Like the, the shooting, the, the, the positioning that he put all the characters in. This felt like more of a well-oiled machine than sometimes his movies can feel. And, and like I said, it didn't feel overindulgent to me. It really felt like he was really trying to tell this story to the best of his ability. And I think for the most part, he did do that. So yeah, I recommend that. I think people will like this and I, I think people would get something out of this and it's well acted, man. And I thought it, and it's unique and the, the story is really unique and it's really close knit and it's a lot of heavy dialogue and stuff. And you know how I'm a sucker for all of that stuff. So I think if you're my kind of movie watcher, yeah, you totally be down for this man. You know, the, the, this was some, the, the art of acting as Batista would say, I'm always trying to portray the art of acting. This definitely has that man. And there, and there can be good movies that, that, that are just built on that. And I think that this is one of them. So yeah, I recommend it. Uh, we'll go with, um, We'll go with, we'll go with 70 um, people <laughs> nicely asking to come into your house, holding all of these crazy death tools <laughs> out of a hundred. Heather, what about you? I could be wrong on this, but I feel like this movie is, um, I know this is based off of a book, correct? So I think this is one of the first like uh, written for screen movies that M. Night Shyamalan didn't actually write himself. I know this is a minimum, at least a third. Oh, is it? Okay. He might've he, he might written Avatar, the last airbender, but it's still based on the intellectual property. There was something else. Yeah. Um, the last one old, I guess it was based on a graphic novel. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Sandcastles. Oh, that's this. right. I remember that now. It's like I, I said, actually it's completely forgot about. Heard. Yeah, I actually just completely forgot about um, Last Airbender because why? Why would you want to think about that movie? But <laughs> um, I, I think I guess I feel like the the projects that he does that I actually tend to like more are the ones where it is actually stories that he's written. Um, you know, huge fan of Split and Sixth Sense and Signs. Those movies, I think, are really great. Those are definitely my top three of his films. Um, but so I, I would think that maybe that might be a little bit of what it is here because, you know, it, I feel like the the way that the story plays out um, overall in general at the end here, too, is a little bit different than what I've seen in other of his works. So I guess that was a little bit of a throw off for me just because I think when you know Shyamalan's movies, you kind of expect a certain thing. Because while I do agree with you, Sterling, that I think Shyamalan is typical with some of the stuff that he does, I actually don't feel like in this movie he does the typical of, at least in in the sense of what I usually like of the typical that he does, if that makes sense. Like, he is predictable and typical in what he is going to choose to do in his films, but he kind of didn't really fully do that in this. And I was kind of actually 
I feel like this is a movie where you actually should do something like that, like add a little twist to it or something. And um, it wasn't really there. So, yeah, I mean, but I mean, all that to say, I mean, the there there are some moments that were thought provoking. There was, like we said, solid acting across the board. And I think that it was well shot and it does grip you in in moments. But so I do see the appeal of this movie. I see why people would enjoy going to see this movie. So I would say if you are if you are a fan of Shyamalan in general, most likely you're going to like this movie more than you're not going to like this movie. Um, so I say, yeah, if you're a Shyamalan fan or if you just want to see Dave Bautista do probably his best acting performance, <laughs> go and see this. Um, I'm going to give it a 63 grasshoppers being caught in a jar outside in the woods out of 100. That means the official Cinescore for this movie is a 53. Way yeah, too damn Yeah, because what did high. you give it, Sterling? 25. 25, and Those are okay. strictly, purely 100% 25 Dave Batista points. Fair enough. I want to make it clear. Nothing else in this movie got a damn point. At all. Just 100% of the points for this movie were Dave Bautista. And if he wasn't in this that. movie, just down. You probably wouldn't have even seen Dave it. Bautista actually accounted for probably about 75 points. It probably would have been a neg 50 if it didn't have Dave Bautista. So, just to give you a point of reference. Uh, spoilers? Yep. Yep. Spoilers. Um, just to kind of talk about some of the things you brought up, Justin. You, oh man, you said something in your recommendations and scores. And I rem- I wish I remembered what you said. You said something about typical or something... Like, I don't know. Like, this was typical M. Night Shyamalan or was it? I don't remember. All I know is I had a really nice comeback for that. Whatever it was, I had a nice comeback that I don't remember. Because I don't remember. I said that, I just said that I didn't think it was um, as self-indulgent as some of his other projects are. And I it didn't feel like he did typical Shyamalan things. Especially at the end of it, I thought. So that, uh, that was wasn't. My, I think that overall, that's how I felt. Yeah, yeah. No, there was. There was just one specific phrase you said, and oh. I was like, <laughs> I could take that and twist it to be like a counter to you, and I just don't remember what phrase it was, so I don't remember what I was going to say. But I wanted you. Oh, okay. I just wanted you to know I had something. Damn it. Anyway. Okay. Um, it's going to come to you later, probably. Yeah, it probably won't. That means I'm going to have to think about this movie, and that's not going to happen once we're done recording. Um, no. Uh, to be fair, I kind of wish this was a little bit more Shimalayan than it was. 
I think one of the problems with this movie is it's a little too straightforward. Yeah. In in a negative way, I think they leave little to no mystery. So it becomes very predictable. And in doing so, it gets rid of the tension of the movie. It dissipates. And this and the problem is that this movie hinges on tension for you to really engage and, and, and connect with the home invasion aspects of this movie. And when it loses tension, it loses any sort of investment for me. I, whenever it gets to the point to where they're more or less just saying, hey, guys, this apocalypse shit is real. We are going to show you every single instance of this apocalypse being real after every single one of these things. And I know that they give the rationale in the movie that the, the one character gives. He's like, oh, the tsunami or, you know, the, the earthquake happened hours ago. They could have known about it, even though the, the whole point is the second earthquake that causes the second tsunami. Um, and then like the disease. And he's like, you know, I've been working on fighting, you know, shit with that disease or, you know, I've known about the disease for weeks. And then, you know, then the planes falling out of the sky. And that was the worst looking planes falling out of the sky ever. I don't know if it was an intentional move to just have them drop, like just drop, not coast like they would. Like they'd have an angle to them as they fall. They wouldn't just be going and then fall straight down. There would be some momentum. There's inertia. There's some shit. But they just start falling directly straight down. And then you've got random planes that do go. It it just, that looked dumb to me. Um, but they just started doing all that stuff. And then he starts quoting that, you know, that newscast verbatim. And then you know that the other dad is going to, you know, believe it. Because they've been telling you the whole movie. He's the one that's going to believe it. Because while he may be gay, he's also more or less a devout Christian in a lot of ways. So they're like, he's going to be the one to believe it. So whenever he's the one that believes it, you're not surprised. And that's the thing is I'm not saying that there needs to be a twist twist, but there needs to be something. There needs to be some sort of a little bit of mystery or an air or at least even just a hair bit more uncertainty than the movie actually presents. Because once you get to halfway through the movie and then as it progresses, just even for a few minutes, you can more or less just predict with 95% accuracy the rest of the fucking movie. At least the major like beats of the movie. It was a very boring watch. And I, I, See, I had issues with M. Night Shyamalan in this because, I mean, you brought up the cinematography and stuff like that. His movies are typically well shot. That's never really been an issue for M. Night Shyamalan. You know, his movies tend to look good outside The Last Airbender because that was like a mess on a mess. Like, it was a way too dimly lit movie, but then it was also 3D, which also adds a layer of dimness to your movie. So it was just almost unwatchably dark. But outside of that, his movies are generally visually fine and have some good visual aspects to them. My issue has been and always will be with how he tells stories. 
And after seeing him in this movie, talk about the wonders of an air fryer. Hey, I've never wanted to own an air fryer less. Like when I came home and I saw my air fryer sitting on my counter, I never wanted to punt my air fryer quicker than after seeing this movie. (laughs) I never want to eat a crispy food again just because that man said crispy while staring into the camera. But alas, that's neither here nor there. But I see him insert himself into this movie as he typically does. And I just had flashbacks to Lady in the Water. Where kind of dealt with a slightly similar premise. You have prophecies of the end of the world. You have few people that can help prevent it. And lo and behold, who is that prophetic person? Who is the person that within the movie they say, you know, they might not understand his writings now, but in the future he will be the writer that inspired and evolved mankind. He will be the writer that all mankind looks to as the one that changed the world. Oh, his character? So then this you have this movie about prophecies and things like that. And I feel his little insertion into this movie. And it kind of just makes me feel like he's once again on that bullshit that he had about himself and Lady in the Water. That, oh, you might not get me now, but in the future they'll understand that I am the greatest. Because he sits there and this movie's coming out and he's doing press tours and stuff like this. And he says that this movie will take home invasion movies and like apocalypse into the world like disaster movies and turn them on their head. This will be the movie that redefines those genres. Oh, he said that? Yeah. This movie ain't redefining shit. It's it's equal parts just standard ass fucking home invasion movie and equal parts fucking disaster movie. It's just, it, it didn't redefine shit. And that's what I'm saying is this movie here, it's, it's, it's him on his own dick again. And I felt that the whole fucking movie and I get out of the movie and I just happen to be on fucking Facebook and it's all like Variety Magazine or whatever fucking thing it was. And it's like M. Night Shyamalan says that his movie is going to change the way we fucking look at these movies. It's not. His movies rarely ever fucking do. So it takes this movie that I did not enjoy, that I was bored out of my fucking mind of for most of the fucking movie. And apparently this redefines this. So apparently my new definition of home invasion movies and natural disaster movies is bored out of my goddamn mind for the entire fucking thing. That's my new definition, according to M. Night Shyamalan, because that's the entire fucking thing I felt during this. The slight glimmer of hope I genuinely had during this movie was Dave Batista, And I was really glad that he did this movie just for the sheer fact that some of the movies I've seen him in, as much as I do like him as an actor, when they've hinged a little bit too much on him, they haven't necessarily been that good. He did that movie with uh, Kumail Nanjani where he's the cop and like he hijacks Kumail's cab or Uber or whatever the fuck it is. And then has to get Kumail to come help him, you know, stop the drug cartel or whatever the fuck it was. I I don't remember. But that movie, 
it hinges on Dave Batista because he's one of the two leads of the movie. And it doesn't really work. The movie was him and Camille kind of trying too hard. And and then in a sense having a very forced and shoehorned chemistry. Which is really unfortunate because they're both actually very funny people. I think if they actually got to play a little bit... Uh, I think if they didn't have to say the jokes that were on the fucking page, it might have helped. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those yeah. movies where it felt like the script didn't fit them. When if you had just kind of let them make the script fit themselves, it probably would have worked. They probably would have had a great chemistry. You know? And then he did that one fucking movie where he's like a CIA guy that like befriends the little girl. You know? That type of fucking movie. And I watched that. It's whatever. I mean, hey, the bar in which that movie is going to hit in general is never going to be that high. But just in turn, like I said, it kind of hinges a lot more on Dave Batista because he is the, you know, one adult lead character in that movie. Doesn't really work. So I was really glad I at least saw him in this movie because this movie at least showed... Dave Batista can carry a movie. Dave Batista, as your main focal point for a movie, can work. He just needs to be better about choosing the movies he does it with. Because this movie did not fail because of him. So I, I will give him that. And I, I'm really glad that he stayed muscular for this movie. Because he needed that. He needed all the muscles in the fucking world to carry this fucking movie as well as he did. So I'm glad he stayed buff. It really helped out. <laughs> um, I mean, going into some of the other little things with it, I think they at least could have gotten a little bit trickier at the end of the movie. Say you wanted to tell the other parts of the story the exact same way you did. I think it would have at least been better at the end of the movie if, what's his name? Jeff got uh, Jonathan Goff's character. Like say he pulled the gun on the other dad and the guy's like, what are you doing? He's like, this shit's real. We have to kill one of us to stop this. And the other guy be freaking out a little bit, but like, you know, be like, no, we can't do this. And he's like, no, one of us has to fucking kill the other one. Be like, no, we can't do this. All this other stuff. He's like pointing the gun at him. And he's like, the other guy's freaking out. And then when you think he's going to shoot the other guy to stop it because he's like dead set and serious about it, he could then just fucking hand him the gun. And be like, it has to be you that kills me. And then do the same speech that he did in the movie. For the most part, I was fine with that. Outside of the fact that the entire movie was telling you the entire fucking time he was going to be the one to sacrifice himself. I'm fine with that ending I just wish I didn't know that was the ending for the last hour. You know, so give me a little something to make me think I'm wrong. Give me a little something to make me feel like I did actually just take a journey instead of me feeling like I looked at something and I was exactly right the entire time. I, I, I should not have known what the end of this movie was going to be after Rupert Grint killed his character. 
Like after he commits suicide, I should not have known the rest of this fucking movie. And it's just like they went, hey guys, we're gonna do paint by numbers. And you get and you sit there and go, oh man, cool. So I get to pick my own color palette. And they go, nope. Normal ass colors. It's just gonna be regular ass blue, regular ass red, boring ass yellow, basic fucking green, and so on and so forth. Couldn't even get like a lavender or a lime green or anything else in here. It's just basic aspects of it. Like I said, to the point to where it is boring. And when it culminates into some of the things, like I could nitpick this fucking doomsday prophecy thing that they had in here because there's a lot of weird inconsistencies with it. That maybe, maybe in the book, those aren't there. Those inconsistencies aren't there. Maybe there there are some things that are pulled out of the story for the sake of time, because, you know, books, they always adapt things, and they change things to make it visually flow. So maybe they took some things, but they left some things, and because of that, there's some inconsistencies in the prophecy aspect of things that don't really flow right and don't make any sense. Um, So I'm willing to give it that aspect, and maybe later, if based on what you guys say over the next couple of minutes, maybe I disagree with you, or, like, maybe you guys just, fuel me and I go, no, fuck this. I'm going to break apart this shit too. Maybe I'll do it. Um, But I will say this. One of the issues I had too, that really just kind of annoyed me because it happened in real time in the theater is Rupert Grint's character kills himself. So Ron Weasley's dead and they start watching the news and they're like, all right, Ron Weasley killed himself. Here's the news. And then they're like, see second earthquake tsunami in Oregon. And they're watching the news and they go, hey, guys, we just got this footage from Oregon. And it goes there and it's like people on a beach, there's people on a beach and it's, you're, you're on a cell phone camera or just a regular fucking family camcorder. Jaston brought up in an off the air segment that maybe that was a newscast and it was a live feed. I don't remember them saying that. I thought they said we received this footage, but I don't think it my problem with it falls apart if it, it's either or. Um, but I'll just go what I was feeling when I was watching the scene. So let's say it's it's a GoPro camera, uh, camera footage or cell phone camera footage, and they're watching the wave, they're watching the wave, they're watching the wave, and they're like, oh, shit, it's an actual tsunami. And so then they start running away, and then the wave crashes over the people, and you see underwater, and the camera's bubbling around because it's a big wave and all this stuff, water, water, water. It's underwater. You see some bodies in the water, and it's underwater. And then somehow the news camera got the footage or the news station got that footage. How the fuck did they get this footage? I'm watching it. Like I said, my recollection of it was saying they received this footage. So to me, that's like a cell phone or a camera. How did they receive this footage? The person that was shooting it is now underwater and dead. Worst case scenario, the fucking medium in which it was shooting is most likely dead. Or it at yeah. least was not being held by somebody at one point because it was splashing around like it wasn't. So then where did, like, how did they get that footage, especially then so quickly? Like, it wouldn't really work like that. There's no way to get that footage, especially with the crystal clear visual, you know, image that they had. And I think even if it was, let's just, you know, like Jason said, that he thought they said it was live footage. Even if you do that argument, most of the time, not all the time, but more often than not, whenever you send a report, uh, a camera to a scene to do like live footage of something happening, you typically send a reporter. 
to like ask people questions or to help do questions or if there needs to be questions or to at least commentate what they're seeing to the people back home. There's typically someone, someone there to commentate all that. None of that was happening. And then on top of that, let's say it was a live transmission. Typically that means wires going back to the truck. They might be doing that stuff wirelessly. That seems a little weird to be doing that wirelessly, wirelessly then to the satellite to wirelessly transmit again. I don't distinctly know, but either way, let's say it's wires that would have gotten disconnected well before that, just because of the wire, the way the wires and the spinning of the camera, she would have gotten disconnected and it broke. Plus those cameras aren't necessarily waterproof. Most of them aren't. They might be mildly wire, uh, water resistant, but typically they put the things, the canopies over them whenever it's raining because they really can't handle water all that well. Some of them can, but most of the time news stations aren't. That should have then just destroyed the camera and would have destroyed the footage coming through. It wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Either way, that doesn't work for me. It's just, to me, it's a shot from a guy going, hey, I think I could film a really cool apocalypse scene, so I'm going to film that. Well, how are you really going to put that in this movie, M. Night Shyamalan? Oh, it's going to be news footage. It just doesn't look like news footage. And I think that that's what it was. I think he went, hey, I know how to do this. These scenes really cool. I think he was reading this book. He's like, man, I know how to film these scenes really well. Not necessarily tie them into the thing. I think he's like, I know how to visually make these scenes interesting. Don't get me wrong. That's, you know, it's a, it's a fine, whatever scene of a wave hitting down. It just doesn't fit within the context of the movie to actually look that way. And I have a problem with the fact that I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking that real time in the movie wasn't even like after the movie i thought of this that scene's unfolding and i'm like how the fuck is this you know just received footage it is so crystal clear and then the waves hitting and i'm like oh man whoever's filming that died wait a second if he died how the fuck did he give them footage i'm just you know what i mean like i'm thinking that during the movie that's a problem when i'm actually so checked out of your movie at that point uh, issues anyway um I feel like Jason's going to have a lot to say. So let's give it to Heather first. Uh, Cause she's kind of the middle ground between us. Like I'm, I'm strong, you know, dislike there's her in the middle and then there's you on the other side. So let's, let's just go through the spectrum. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and sort of alluding to that too, like something you said, Sterling about, um, you kind of wish it had been a little bit more Shyamalan-like. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's where, where I was at, too, because I really enjoy the, the like, twists that he can put into a movie. Like, I, I, we all know, Sterling, you're not a big Shyamalan fan. Um, <laughs> I, I like a decent amount of his movies, you know, and I like the little twist factor. <laughs> I like the twist factor that, he puts into a lot of things, but I, I do agree actually that the straightforwardness of this movie was just a little bit jarring because I think that's what made it feel like it was losing its, um, you, why, why it felt anticlimactic is because, um, I'm expecting this big reveal or this big thing at the end of it that didn't happen. And maybe that's just my own expectation of it just from seeing so many of his other films. I expected that to happen and it didn't. Um, it actually was, you know, this apocalypse and things like that. And I actually just with how they were playing into it and the tension that they actually, 
I think built fairly well throughout the film of the, um, the two, the, the husbands that were kind of back and forth about it or not even back and forth, but the one husband who was very much like adamant that this is not true. It's not real. And then Jonathan Groff's character, who was like starting to come around to it and, and starting to believe in it. Um, I, I liked that point of contention between them, but I just feel like just so many things that even I want to say it was Andrew was the one who was against the whole thing. Um, the character, Andrew, I, I think he brought up some decent points and I just also feel like the whole storyline of Rupert Grint's character, whose name is, I don't remember his name in the movie, uh, Redmond, Redmond, right? So with that whole storyline, they, they made a big point about that in this film that he was actually somebody that knew them and um, he's somebody who attacked Andrew at another point in time and changed his name. And of course, Andrew remembers him and all these things. I, I think that was an interesting thing to put in this film, but I feel like it was something that I expected to play a bigger part in the film. I, I figured it was going to be like, I think it would have been interesting if he was just so set out on his revenge path of being mad that he was put in jail for some time because of Andrew that he just went on these message boards and was just saying the things that the other people wanted to hear because he just wanted in on this thing to torture this guy more. Like, I think that that would have been an interesting factor to put into this whole thing, which is sort of where I thought it was going to go that these, you know, other three people with Redmond are, they're just believing um, everything that he's saying and going along with it because even uh, Leonard, Dave Batista's character makes a point of, he said he was seeing these visions, right? It's like, yeah, he could say a lot of things. <laughs> he could say a lot of things and make you think that he believes what you believe if he is so adamant and passionate about getting revenge on a person, right? Which would still play into the part of malice that he sort of was supposed to be the character of. But anyway, so all of that to say, I, I thought they were going to factor that in. And I just think it would have been interesting if it's like, the twist was, oh, he actually didn't believe in any of this either. He just, he made us think that he was one of us. And then the whole end of the world thing that was supposed to happen didn't because Redmond wasn't actually really believing any of her seeing the visions or something like that. You know, like, I feel like that could have been an interesting twist to put into it. Or the fact that with the two women who were killed, they put he put their bodies in the house in another room, but he took Redmond's body out. And I'm not sure why he did that or if they explained why he did that. But I was like, well, what if it plays into somehow they've, they've tricked them into thinking that he was dead and he wasn't, or I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I just expected something like that to happen in this film because it's M. Night Shyamalan and it didn't happen. So it doesn't make it, that's not necessarily what makes it a lesser movie. That's just what I expected to happen. And it didn't. Um, but I just, there's little things that they played with in there that I thought could have been better used to further the story. And 
I agree. I think that like having a little bit more tension between the the husbands would have been an interesting play too. Like um, Andrew, the one who was so very much like, this isn't real. They're crazy. We are not going to turn on each other. Something happens in his mind where he's the one who does turn into saying, I believe all of this is real. Like, you know, Batista kills himself and he's like, oh, this is real. All right. Immediately shoots Eric or something like just I I I thought that that could have brought a little bit more of like a like a wow factor at the end of the film um and the fact that it was just a straight up apocalyptic this is just what happened kind of story it just it, it lulled out a little bit too soon for me at the end there and I I'm not sure why but that's just kind of how I felt at the end like it just sort of the last maybe 10-15 minutes of this movie were just very stagnant, I would say. Um, but again, it's usually because I'm looking for a twist or something else to come up that I didn't expect with the Shyamalan film. But um, I did like the character of Andrew. Um, I'm not remembering the guy who plays him. I don't actually think I'd ever seen him in anything else before. Um, ben Aldridge. I thought he was a really great character. Um, I, I really felt for him. Like, I think if there was any character that I felt for as far as like <laughs> his reactions to what was happening in the moment, I, I just, I felt for him because he was trying to hold it together for all three of them because he could see that Eric was sort of swaying or doubting And he was just really trying to be strong for all three of them. And I, I think he pulled that character off really well. And then you have the balance of Eric being that more peaceable guy that, you know, is just the more good natured one, if you will, the more easygoing one, the kinder one, whatever you want to call him, you know, and he ends up being the one that saves the day because he is willing to sacrifice himself, which kind of did see that coming I'll be honest I saw or I saw that he was at least going to be the one that died um for whatever reason I just had a feeling it was going to be him but um you know I I just I I think that they they had a really great dynamic and chemistry together with this whole trying to keep it together trying not to turn on each other but really afraid of what the other one was going to think or do at any given moment with this really crazy situation they were put into. And another thing that I really did appreciate about their, um, just the performances was Dave Batista, um, Rupert Grant, all, all of the horsemen of the apocalypse, I thought were, <laughs> I actually, I just, I really, really like how they all played it as they were actually very, there was something very human about them and just how they were trying to reason with these people that they were asking to do an impossible thing. There was something just very intriguing about that because they're clearly doing this home invasion thing. And they're just like, we're going to force you guys to make this terrible decision. And if you don't, we're going to kill ourselves in front of you and like just things like that. But just how very blindly and, faithfully they believed in what they thought their mission was it was so interesting to just see how they were trying to reason with these people 
and um, just how scared they were. I really appreciated them showing like, this isn't what we wanted. We are terrified and we don't want to die. We don't want anybody to die. And that's why we hate that you have to do this, but you have to do it. Like, I, I just appreciated that scared. They, they, they all seem terrified at every single moment of this film. And I really thought that that was a great uh, portrayal to have them doing based off of the situation they were putting these people in, um, especially Leonard or Dave Batista. Like, I think the scene with him and Wen at the very beginning is probably one of the most captivating scenes of the whole movie when he first meets her. I think that was such a great scene. So he, you just kind of, he draws you in right away. He's a very endearing, charming person. You see that he feels like he's got this burden on him. And, and then you realize all four of them kind of have this burden on them as well. So I, I think those were the good aspects of the film. I think just for me, I was hoping for some other ending that wasn't as straightforward because that's what I like about his films, about Shyamalan's films is they're not always straightforward or there's always some kind of a twist that changes the trajectory of what is going to actually happen at the very end. So, um, but yeah, uh, I mean, it again, no issues with the acting. It's just, it, it felt like there were pieces of the story that were told really well, but then there were other pieces that almost like they just didn't complete the full story when they had really good pieces. They could have delved into a little bit more to make it a more interesting overall story. Justin. Complete the spectrum. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I, it's interesting that you guys are talking about, I expected this plot twist or this big turn. And you're kind of talking about, um, the expectations of that because of Shimalan's track record. And I get all that. Um, I guess maybe the reason why I like this movie is because I just don't think that was the point of this movie. Like it felt like this was more about the journey of the characters and less about there being this big surprise and everything like that. I really think that this was about the belief of what was happening versus not believing it. And the story of these characters going from this awful situation of seeming like their, their home being invaded and being captured and everything like that. And then the journey to understand what was actually happening and what their role was and what they had to do and the difficult decision that they had to come to. It feels more like the movie was about that stuff and less about there having to be this big surprise or anything like that. I, I do think that early on, the 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 film was trying to put the audience in the position of, okay, do you believe this or not? I really think that that was the 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 story that the film was taking but i do think at a certain point the purpose was for the audience to believe and then it was about seeing where the characters were going to wind up i i do i think all of that felt to me by designed so so i guess that might explain why 
I just didn't feel as disappointed as you guys. I, I felt like I understood what he was going for and what and what the film was trying to do. So I guess because of that, I didn't have this expectation that there was going to be this like big surprise or, oh, it's all fake. They're not, it's not really an apocalypse or, oh, the, 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 the person that was really doing this was Batista was actually pretending. And really this was all just, uh, um, something because they're in this sadistic cult or, you know, I guess uh, like I'm trying to think of what the surprise or possibilities could have been. And I don't feel that anything that I could think of was better than what they did. Well, and to just touch on that a second, like, I feel like even with a movie like this, kind of keeping it open-ended, I just feel like maybe might have been better. Like, if, because I agree with you, I think that the goal, and and I kind of, I felt that tension throughout the movie of, they want the audience to kind of start questioning and start thinking about, like, do they think these guys are telling the truth or not? You know, and all of this. And, And they did, I think they did a good job of building that tension but I feel like the payoff would have, it's one of those movies that I actually feel like keeping it open-ended a little bit might have, I, I feel like it might have fit with the rest of what they did with the movie. And maybe that's just me, but it, you know what I mean? Like, because then it's, it, it is one of those, like, you know, it, it, it leaves this thought provoking thing at the very end of it to where they don't fully tell you what happens, but based on how you felt about their actions. And if you thought they were telling the truth, that's how you see the end, the ending of the movie in a way. But just, I don't know, just a thought that I had. Okay. I don't, that's interesting. Definitely. I just feel like the ending would have had to have been something in order for this to be open-ended, like for it to end in a way to where it's like, was it true or was it not true? I, I'm not sure how you could have executed um, and got that feeling. I, I don't know. I, don't, I just think with the story that he had, I don't know how you could have arrived there. Unless like maybe, maybe I guess you could have had characters make a decision and then... I guess the aftermath, some things could have happened to where I guess you're questioning, well, did, w- w- was it all real or was it not? Or did this person kill his husband for nothing? Or did he, did he really kill it for something? I, I guess you could have had all of that. But being that this is a story about this, some characters, it, it's the faith versus, it, it's a faith story. You know, it's faith versus not having faith. So if that's the story and the point of the story is that these characters that didn't have that faith arrive to the end and they have it, I just don't know how much an open ending, an open ended film helps that. But, but I get what you're saying. Maybe from an entertainment, entertaining aspect, I guess I could see, an open ending, something being entertaining, you know, if it's executed right, I'm not necessarily saying that they couldn't, but with this story, I think you kind of, if the point was to show like these people not having faith and then having it, I feel like it had to end the way that it did. Well, if that makes sense for this story. Well, I, I disagree with that just for the sheer fact that, 
having it open-ended, whether or not the apocalypse was actually happening or not, to me speaks more to faith and not faith than saying it was happening. They, they more or less in the movie yeah. say the apocalypse is happening. So if you leave it open-ended, and that's very easy to do. You make a couple of changes in this movie, and you can completely have both of these things you're talking about. And that's by cutting out all the fucking news sequences showing you that shit's happening. If just as they start to kill themselves, especially when it gets down to just Leonard and stuff like that, and they kind of just start having storm clouds brewing, like those dark menacing storm clouds brewing in the sky, very ominous and all this other stuff. And then he kills himself and lightning strikes. And then all of a sudden lightning striking all over the fucking forest. You can have that aspect of it because you can still chalk that up to that can just be a freak storm or it could be the apocalypse. And then, like I said, they, one of them kills themselves and then the storm kind of stops. You can still kind of leave it as, was that the apocalypse? Or is this sheerly a coincidence like that one guy is saying? And then you can leave it open-ended. They don't go to that diner and they're not sitting there watching the news of, oh, you know, 10 minutes ago, whenever your husband died, everything stopped. You know what I mean? You cannot have those scenes in it. And you still get a movie that's about faith and not faith. And you still get it open-ended. Was the apocalypse happening or was it not? Because to me, that speaks more to faith than anything. It's whether or not you truly believe the apocalypse is happening or not. That's what I would do to combine both of your points. Okay. Um, So you're saying that in an open-ended movie... So then the character journeys, I'm just trying to understand that ending. So if the character, so, but if the point of it was for the characters to arrive to a place where they are supposed to then believe this scenario that these home invaders came in and proposed to them. If the point of the story is for them to believe it and then make these sacrifice in the end. I'm just not understanding why you would want that to be open-ended and have the audience questioning their decisions to make the sacrifice. I don't Well, because it get goes that. to what you're but, directly saying, Justin, faith and not faith. Do they have the faith that the apocalypse was happening or not? You know, do Daddy it Eric well, I guess and Daddy Andrew believe it's happening? Because it doesn't, I guess in a sense, it doesn't really change any of the actions that would happen in the movie because they would still be making the decisions they made about what they believed about it. But I I guess, and it could just be selfishly me because I'm like, I kind of am really bummed out at the end that it was uh, really happening and that um, Daddy Eric died. Like, I'm kind of bummed out that that's what had to happen. And you know what I mean? But like, yeah, I, I guess... Would you have been less bummed if you felt like it was open-ended and you didn't even think that what he did was worth it? I mean... I mean, do do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what my confusion is? Like, if if you got to the end of the film and you felt like 
man, he probably didn't even have to do that. I don't even know if this really happened or not. Doesn't that make his death kind of like. For nothing. I don't know. I just, I, mean, I, I get can't get there. But to me, that makes his death have nothing to do with faith. That makes his death have to do with the actual. I think I, I slightly disagree with Heather. I believe he should have died. But I'm saying right afterwards, when they jump in the truck and they go to a diner and they're seeing everything was just confirming the apocalypse was happening, but not. That's the part you leave open-ended to me. You don't know if the apocalypse was actually happening or not. You just have to, like, you hope for the character's sake that it was. You have to have faith. Like, that's that goes into what you were saying, Justin. You have to have faith that the characters believed that it was happening, and therefore they, what they did, at least in their own minds, was right based on the limited information they have. That's what I'm saying is they, yeah. they, they spoon-fed them going, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. That's not faith. That's more or less acting on, on actual evidence that shit's happening. Which... It's interesting, too, because I do feel like Shyamalan does put a lot of, like, spiritual elements in most of his work that he does. And I think about, like, for whatever reason, this sort of correlates in my mind to, um, like, signs and how a lot of that movie is also about, like, what do you have faith in? What do you believe in? Do you think these aliens are real or not? And to Jason's point, they do eventually show, obviously, that there was actually aliens that came. But... I feel like the way that this, I don't know, it just feels like with this one, with this movie, it just felt to me like the the better direction would have been, yeah, because if it is about like having faith and like starting to question what you believe, not having a full like closed up ending, it just felt more natural with the rest of the story that they were telling because the whole time it was like everybody was supposed to try to figure out, are they telling the truth or are they not? You know, so it, I guess I just felt like for this particular movie, it made more sense for me if it didn't have a full closed up ending. Even if, you know, Eric did still die and all of those things, that's fine. Like not necessarily changing the outcome of what happens, just changing like, okay, so we don't actually find out. Yeah, for sure. Was all of this fabricated? Was it just people who had this, you know, this plan and the plan was for nothing? Like not knowing those things at the end, it just felt like a natural progression of the story they were trying to tell. But again, just just my opinion. I don't know. Okay, cool. Well, I'll move on after this part, but I just, but I don't know. I just feel like, that feels like a circle to me. If we start with questioning whether or not this is real and then we end with questioning whether or not this is real, it kind of feels like, where did we go? But I, I, but, but I get what you're saying. Okay. But, but we'll just, we'll just move on. But, but like, uh, so for me, I guess, but but what I was trying to explain with all that was, is that's why at the end, I didn't feel the way you guys did. Um, I I think I kind of knew where it was going right away. Like when I saw the, the, there was a scene early on 
when they were standing there and when Batista was doing his dialogue about the apocalypse and everything, I said in my head, and this was minutes in, I said in my head, there are they the four horsemen of apocalypse? Is that what this is? You know, and and you know, and I just kind of had an inkling, maybe that's what this was. And even though I was right, that didn't diminish my enjoyment for what was happening. I still felt like it was pretty cool how we got there. Even though I was right, I felt like it was pretty cool how we got there. Um, whenever the the um the husband um Eric or no, yes, Eric. Um whenever he after the concussion, whenever he kind of saw that vision and light and everything. Um, and, and, and then he was kind of like, I saw something, but I'm not, I'm sure what I saw. And then whenever, um, he was being bandaged by the nurse and she wrapped the, the ribbon around him, I was kind of like, okay, is that like, I don't know why, but I just immediately thought, Jesus references. And I was like, okay, is that like the crown or is that like the halo or whatever? And I immediately just had a thought, he's the sacrificial lamb. He's the one that's going to be killed. You know what I mean? Like I I just had an inkling, like I kind of knew what Shimalan was trying to do. Yeah. Like the pure soul has to be the sacrifice kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, or or him, or just that whole thing with the crown and him kind of seeing the light and everything like that. And then he had a line where he said, um, where where he was like, can you still um, not see? And he was like, I'm seeing clearly. You know, all those little things where I'm seeing more clearly now. Like all those little things, like at first him being blinded by the light, he didn't want, he wanted to be in the darkness, right? And then finally he, when he saw the light, you know what I mean? Then he could see clearly. So, um, so almost right away, I kind of understood what the, where Shimalan was probably going with some of that stuff. But for me, it was more about the journey and less about the destination. So I still found it very enjoyable. I, I thought that at the beginning, when Batista uh, is, is talking to the little girl, and yeah, and she did, and I want to say that's her first role. So that that little girl did a great job. I mean, yeah, I thought that she was she did pretty great for it to be her first role. But what I loved about Batista's form performance and why I can definitively say it's the best is because of all the the vibes it was giving me like even in that first conversation we know that the character is genuine by the time we get to the end of the film but at the time that was uncomfortable like because you didn't know if this child was being manipulated or you did you did you weren't entirely sure at the beginning of the film like, so when you're seeing all of that happening, because you don't know, uh, you don't really know what this is going to wind up being yet. Right. So, and so I thought that that was very well played, just that conversation they were having. It was a friendly conversation, 
But at the same time, it was unsettling because Batista kind of played it with this withholding energy. Like you could tell that he was trying to befriend her, but he was also withholding something. And as an audience member, I was kind of like, what is he withholding? So it felt like there was something that he wasn't saying. And then finally, when he got to the part to where he was like, y'all are going to have to make some difficult decisions and everything like that. And like, I just loved his performance here because I felt like even though he was saying these things and felt like he had to do these things, kind of what you were saying um, earlier, Heather, you could see this hurting him for what he was doing and that he didn't want to do it this way and that he wished that there was some other way, but he didn't feel like there was a choice. And then you come to meet all these other characters and you're starting to see, okay, this is what's happening. And I think maybe this is why, to a certain degree, Shimalon is talking about the whole thing about changing the genre and home invasion and stuff like that. Now, I don't know if he necessarily hit all of those goals. You know what I mean with this? But definitely what I could say is, is that when the film opens, it really seems like it's a home invasion thing. You know, them try that they're locked in and these innocent people seem like they're being persecuted and they can't get out and everything like that. And all the tension and the yelling back and forth and all of that stuff. But as the movie goes along, I did feel myself going, okay, these people aren't bad people. You, you know, I think there was, uh, there was this back and forth of, okay, I don't think they're bad people. But that doesn't mean, but is this story true still? And as Andrew is throwing the questions out there and saying, well, this footage was pre-recorded. How do we know that they didn't time up these recordings and all of this kind of stuff? And you, you crazy people get on these message boards and stuff like that. I thought that his objections are, are things that you've heard before. You, you know, when anybody is talking about people of, cults and stuff like that. You know, we've heard some of these same objections before. So I thought that all of that was fine. I like that they were throwing objections at the audience to try to see, okay, if do, do you believe this or not? And I guess if you were a person who just right away was like, okay, I just believe it. I do believe that this is the apocalypse. Then I guess I can see that limiting your enjoyment. If you accept it by the second news cast that yes, this is the apocalypse, then I guess I could see that diminishing your enjoyment of the film, especially if you were hanging on wondering, is it really going to be the apocalypse by the end? I guess that could uh, alter your enjoyment of this. But what I enjoyed was getting to learn about the characters and getting to learn about kind of some of the hardships that that couple had when they were adopting the, the little girl and everything and getting to see kind of Andrew and why he was so hardened and why he was and see. And that's why I guess I felt like those scenes were so important. It wasn't just to develop them as characters so we could kind of see them more. But I think it was also showing why he was so hardened, why it was so hard for him to come around and the things that he had gone through and some of the things that he had been through. So you understood his perspective, right? Like even though ultimately he he was wrong in that it actually was an apocalypse, 
I think the more important thing was the character journey and understanding why this character had these objections. Uh, To me, that was more important. And I understood that. I understood why Andrew would feel this way. Um, And like what we were talking about with the, um, with the Rupert Grint character, the Redman character and that run in that they had and everything like that. Just to me, the point of that was to further kind of, you know, play with the audience to see if, look, was that just a coincidence or was this actually something or is all of this kind of tied together and everything like that? And just the back and forth of do we believe this or do we not? So I thought the film did a good job of that. I thought the film did a good job of kind of giving you this back and forth with the characters of do we believe this or not? Um and kind of having you rooting for these characters because, and that was kind of an interesting place I thought the film put me in because on one end, I, I'm i starting to believe these characters that are saying that this apocalypse is happening. But at the same time, I don't want one of these family members over here to have to kill themselves. I don't want that to be the 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 fate necessarily either. So I like that the movie puts the audience, the audience members in that position. And I guess if you weren't feeling that, you weren't feeling that. But I like the conflict of that. I I thought that that made for a unique movie experience because on one end, you don't want it. You're rooting for these people. You don't want any of these captured people to die. But at the same time, you're trying to understand these other people and this prophecy and they have these visions and they couldn't shake them and they feel like they have to do this. But you see that they're just regular people kind of pulled into this situation, you know, and all of it kind of ties back to some biblical stuff, too. You know, there were times like people, regular people were pulled into these extraordinary positions by God to do these things or whatever or chosen people and stuff like that we've seen all that before but to me what made the movie unique and interesting was putting you in this position of okay if i believe these people then that means somebody over here has to die and i don't necessarily want somebody over here to die either but so i thought that that was a unique position that that the film tries to put everybody in and tries to put the audience member in with these characters. So by the time it gets to the end and we have to make the sacrifice, I had accepted that, yes, this is going to be true and that, you know, these people are not, will are are not going to have died for nothing. And ultimately it was about this family being chosen to make this sacrifice and whether and 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 what they were going to do and wh- and wh- how that was going to come about and i thought that the acting that they did at the end was heartfelt enough i thought that when the the sacrifice was made and when you see where the characters arrive i thought that all of that was effective i i don't know if i needed a big surprise or if i needed to be ambiguous at the end or anything like that I felt like the purpose was for this family to reject what they had to do and then ultimately come to a place where they had to do it. Um, And and yes, that is very straightforward for Shyamalan. That is not the big surprise that we're used to. 
Um, so, so I can understand people having reservations with that. But for me, for this story, I felt like it was the right decision for this story. Um, I was okay understanding that, okay, this is really happening. Batista's telling the truth. All these people were telling the truth. And this, and this is just a, a, a crazy and awful, but in a, but in a way, a, a necessary decision that these people have to come to. And they were put in a, just a, an impossible place. And it was an impossible decision that they had to make, but they made it ultimately showing that they were the right people for this decision. They were the right people that needed to save the world. And so I was, I was okay with that. You know, I, overall I, I was fine with that. I don't think I needed to question anything or have it be something where it's like, well, did they really have to do that or not? I think, I think his decision to go with this ending best served this film. So, so ultimately that's how I felt about it. And that that's, those are some reasons why uh was more positive on this one. A couple of things that you guys said that made me think some things. Um, Heather, you brought up signs and the whole point was like, it was about faith and it was like ambiguous until the end. Um, but then at the same time, and the reason why I think it's applicable to this movie is what's the number one complaint about signs that it stopped being ambiguous at the end showed the alien stuff yeah, like that's yeah. one of the biggest complaints about signs. And, and with this movie, I don't know. I somewhat reject the notion though, that this movie is any way, shape or form about faith or requires faith while you watch it. Cause it spoon feeds you the whole time that the apocalypse is happening. Like throughout the movie, every time they do something, they go to the news to show proof that it is happening right afterwards. And the thing is, is that and I looked this up. That is something the book does not do. The book, the whole time while they're sitting there and they like, they, you know, they one by one kill themselves. There is like a darkening of the air, you know, like it kind of like storms and shit outside, but it's like a slow progressive thing. Hinting that the apocalypse may be happening. Now, they also changed the order in which they kill each other in the book. Um, because they wanted Leonard to be alive at the is at the end of this one because it was Dave Batista. Dave Batista is not the last person. That character, Leonard, is not who is last in the book itself. Um in fact, the book is actually ambiguous as to whether or not the apocalypse is happening. Uh they never say at, at any given point whether or not it is. And I think that that's the problem with this movie is by spoon feeding the whole time that the apocalypse is happening, this requires no faith. There is actually no journey of faith in this movie. You actually have anecdotal and, and, and visual evidence that the apocalypse is happening. Therefore, that's not faith. Believing the apocalypse is happening in this movie is not faith-based at the end of this movie. That's like that's evidence-based. So I kind of reject the notion that this movie is like requires faith to have the journey or is about faith or shows faith. Like the characters have a journey of faith. I, you know, maybe the quote unquote horsemen do, 
But I don't think Eric or Andrew or Wynn do have that journey of faith. They have direct evidence of these things that are happening as the people said they would. That's not faith. That's evidence-based. So at the end, that's once again, that's evidence-based type of stuff. And that's why I think you do could benefit from things. Because if it is, if the movie is about a journey of faith or having faith or any of that stuff, having the movie be open-ended at the end, not knowing whether or not they actually sacrifice themselves for a legit reason or not, would prove that it was all an act of faith. And by having any sort of definitiveness to any aspect of the story ultimately means there's nothing faith-based in this movie. And also my issue with the end of the movie is, like I said, you don't necessarily have to have a twist. You could have just something else happen. Like the problem with the movie is, is the movie tells you within like the first 15 minutes that Eric's going to be the one that dies. Like you said, the sacrificial lamb is the one having the visions. He's the one that's dictated as to having faith throughout the movie, all this other stuff. So there's also no journey with this character. His character has no story arc and or journey arc. His character is more or less predetermined to be the sacrificial lamb throughout the entire movie from almost the very first times you start seeing these characters when these horsemen show up at the house, they tell you that. And I'll kind of go ahead and bring up some of my issues with this, the horseman aspects and all this other stuff. Why did Rupert, why was Rupert Grint's character prophesied to make a weapon just like everyone else was when he never actually uses it? Because he knows he's going to be the first one to die. And those weapons were not to kill the people or to do anything to the people. They were to do things to each other. So why would God tell him to make a weapon that he's never actually going to use? That they know. It's not like they get to the house and then they're told the order in which they die. He obviously knew from the very beginning he was going to be the one to die first. Therefore, him making a weapon is just kind of superfluous. Just a hmm. thought. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's the thing is I think that is one of the interesting distinctions from the book and this and this movie is like I said, the book's ambiguous about everything. They don't do the whole, hey guys, here's the news story, watch the wave happen. Hey, here's the news story, watch the disease, you know, ward. Hey guys, here's the news story. Um watch planes falling from the sky and watch me recite this, you know, random diatribe the the reporter goes on. You know, like I said, it's all and like based on just them saying shit's happening and therefore they decide, you know, or don't decide or however you want to look at it in the book. Honestly, looking through it, I get why M. Night Shyamalan does not do the ending of the book. Would have been a better movie if he did. But I get it. Uh, spoiler alert for the books, I guess, for people. Uh, yeah, Wynn dies in the book. Curious. And it's not intentional. So oh. when Andrew goes to get the gun like he does in the movie, he accidentally ends up shooting Wynn. Oh, yeah, so Wynn dies. Do that. 
But because it was an accident, it doesn't count as the sacrifice. Because it wasn't one of them choosing to kill a member of the family. So therefore, the way the book ends is Sabrina, the nurse, who quote unquote represents death because she's healing. It's a, it's death. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the last horseman and she kills herself. And David and Andrew just kind of walk off carrying Wynn's corpse. And that's kind of how the book ends. Kind of more or less hinting towards the fact that at that point, if the apocalypse was real, or was about to happen, they wouldn't like they didn't want to sacrifice to where the other one was going to be alone for the rest of their life because Wynn was dead. Therefore, if the apocalypse does happen, they are still together. And if it doesn't happen, they're still together. Okay. So neither of the husbands die in the book. Yeah. But they keep it open ended. You don't know if the apocalypse is actually happening or not. Okay. They just kind of walk off carrying her hmm. corpse, more or less agreeing okay. they're not going to kill each other. Like, neither one of them is going to die. So, I think that that is a better ending. But also, I get it. Not too many people like murdering children in their movies. Correct. So, I get it. I'm not necessarily going to hate on M. Night Shyamalan for not going that ending. It's a lot easier to write that ending in a book than to film that scene. You know, I get it. I do think it's a better ending, though. Um, yeah, I mean, they could have even done where even if Wynn didn't die and it was still Eric that died, the two of them going off together and still not knowing. But either way. Yeah, interesting. that though. is true. The whole idea of it being an accidental death and that's why it doesn't count, I think is in- interesting. Mm. You know, and I think I I do agree. Maybe that's what one of the things they could have done with this movie. They could have accidentally killed Eric. And so then Andrew and Wynn just kind of walk off going, well, it either, you know, counts and the apocalypse doesn't happen or it does happen, but we're still together or it doesn't happen because none of it was real to begin with. I think the, I, I, I agree. That might've actually been the better way to end it in my eyes. Like I said, mm. having the accidental death. But yeah. Mm. No, I I have issues with the whole four horsemen of the apocalypse thing because if you do look at it like that, there is a argument for it. They they use different names, but I mean that's all interpretation. Um because weirdly enough, the only horseman of the apocalypse that officially has a name according to the Bible is death. The other three don't actually have names and never says their names, you know? So the, the whole idea of war and famine and potentially conquest or pestilence, depending on what translation or version of whatever you read of revelations, uh, those three all no, don't have names. They're just kind of described as, you know, the one that's fa- uh, famine, it, you know, when he comes, more or less, it describes a famine happening. So, you know, he's given the name. Same with war. It's like, go forth and kill one another. Um, and that's why conquest or pestilence is kind of weird. Because the bow describes pestilence, but then the rest of it describes conquest. So, that's why, like I said, it's up for interpretation. Um, 
but these horsemen are all weirdly the the positive attributions of everything, with the exception of Redman. You know, the the horseman of death in this is healing. The horseman of famine is nourishment. Supposedly, the contextual one is conquest, is guidance, which is Dave Batista, and then war is malice. I think it's kind of weird that they found a reason to make three of these horsemen positives of their negative attributes, but then still keep war and malice the same. When I think that there's a slightly more intriguing way of doing that, I suppose. Um, But I mean, the horseman characters aren't really around long enough, like especially, you know, Rupert Grint's character. He's not really around long enough. You get part of his story, but you don't know whether or not any of that's a lie because he's lying about his name the whole time. You know, so there's no telling what else he was lying about. But I mean, you can't say he was lying about his belief in what was happening. I mean, he he did willingly let himself get killed. So you could at least, uh, you know, amount that his devotion to this idea was real. But I don't know. That's just weird to me that you want to attribute three things to positive, like give them a positive spin. That's why every time you guys mention the horseman aspect of this, I kind of just shake my head and grimace. It, it, it's weird to, you know, put that positive spin on things. But then also, like I said, it's 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 obvious, like I said, the changes they made for Dave Batista, Because realistically speaking, no matter how you want to look at it, the last horseman is always death. Like, that's the whole point, is the last horseman is always death. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And this one, they change it because, you know, Dave Batista is not death. Dave Batista is Guidance, which that's the worst name for a horseman ever, Guidance. Yeah, guys, let me guide you into the apocalypse. Like it's a Boy Scout merit badge. I don't know. Like I said, so that's the weird aspects of it. That's to me M. Night Shyamalan giving his own little twist on the biblical myths or, you know, his own little spin on it, his little flair. And I just don't like his choices. And I I don't know, this movie's a little weird for me because it's, I don't know if this is confirmation bias or confirmation through pious like did he confirm all the things i don't like about him in this movie or did i just see more things i don't like about him because i already don't like him i mean that is a mm, tough is thing real I, don't, question. I don't know if i can change all i know is to me i feel i feel personally vindicated by this movie i feel like all he did was justify why i don't watch his movies but then also Justify why I watch Dave Batista movies. So I got like double vindicated in my own mind. M. Night Shyamalan to me still sucks as a director. Dave Batista succeeds as an actor. And that's your real takeaways. I think that's to me the most evident truth of, of life itself. Anyway, you guys got any final thoughts about this movie? Uh, Yeah, just to talk a little bit about, I don't want it to be misconstrued when I was talking about the whole thing about the, the faith and everything like that. The thing about this movie, when I say that, that it's like 
a religious journey and stuff like that is because you got to look at um, just some of the basic concepts of what was happening, you know, like being called to something and finally accepting that calling, you know, the, the, that's, that's a, that's what a lot of these, like when you look at these religious journeys and stuff like that, um, the, the one that was the sacrificial lamb or the Jesus of this story, if you will, you know, that's what that was about. Find, you know, discovering the calling, finding the calling and wanting to follow through with that. The, the doubter, his husband, you know, all of those roles are there. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I don't want it to be misconstrued that I thought the point of this was to that, that at the end that they just acted on the pure faith of not knowing the situation. I think, yes, they were shown some things. The, the horsemen were shown the visions. They were shown the news things, but the act of faith is if we do this sacrifice, is it really going to save everyone? So all of it is there. You know what I mean? I don't want it to be misconstrued. So I think all of that ties into what this movie was, which was like this, this journey to discover what your role is in, in this whole thing, the journey to find your calling, all of that kind of stuff, which is, which is a lot of much more like religious stuff. So I just don't want that to be misconstrued. And that's interesting what you said about the book and everything and how it was completely ambiguous to the end. And it sounds like what he wrote in this script or what was written in this script was something completely different. It looks like the Shyamalan made the choice to believe that it was the apocalypse. And so he made the movie based on I guess his interpretation that yes, it was the apocalypse and sort of change things to be definitively that, but it would be interesting to see a, a, a different movie tackle of a person who uh, maybe doesn't think it was the apocalypse and writes the story that way. Or like you said, leave it open-ended where there's, an accidental death instead of a real sacrifice and all of that stuff and kind of have the ending play out that way. Um, that sounds like that would have been an interesting movie too. Um, and even though this is a lot different, I still like what we got with this one. And, and, and to be fair to M night Shyamalan, the article I read real quick doesn't definitively say that there are no news stories during the, the book. Um, it just, the, the article I read at least implies that, like I said, that it is open-ended like it described. That's exactly how it describes the ending. You know what I mean? They go off walking together, not knowing if the world is ending or not ending or whatever. You know what I mean? Like there's no, but the way that they, they wrote the article implies that it's because the whole time, there's no evidence of whether or not it's directly happening or not. It could be the way they worded things implies that. And throughout the book, they're saying, oh, no, look, they watched the news and that. That could be true, but they just worded it poorly in the article. But like I said, the article does definitively say, like, 
at the end of the book, when they're walking off, you do not get confirmation whether or not the apocalypse is or is not happening. So I, w- I just want to be fair to like possibly M. Night Shyamalan or what I said earlier. It could have been a poorly written article. <laughs> but, you know. Um, but like I said, it at least says like definitively, like that's how the book ends is they just walk off. Like they're like walking off to like go get in the van that the, the people came in to drive away. Like it's not a, they're not, you know, it's like they don't even care if the apocalypse is happening or not. And, and that was kind of the beautiful way that they at least worded that in the article is that they didn't care if the apocalypse was happening or not because when dying was their apocalypse. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that was a great way of putting it. And I think I, I kind of thought like when the movie started or going into the movie, because you know, you we based on trailers, you know the premise of the movie. You know what I mean? You get that little bit of the speech of one of you, you know, has to kill someone in your family. You know what I mean? You get that in the trailer and stuff like that. I kind when the trailers happened, I kind of wondered if Wynn was gonna die. Once the movie was going, I did not have that notion. But it's good to know that I'm not the only person that thought that because some motherfucker wrote it down and officially ended their book that way. So (laughs) true that true that. But I don't know. Like I said, I, I did like at least that sentence that that guy wrote in the article, like, you know, they didn't care if the apocalypse was happening because they're dead. I was like, that's kind of poetic. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of poetic. I do like that line. I, I do like that line. That's very interesting. And yeah, and you can just tell that Shimalan just, it seemed like he just went a completely different direction than from that, you know. And maybe that's it, the twist the whole time. <laughs> is that it was more about that, huh? You know, um, and, and still, you know, it, it and it raises all, and I don't know, it just raises all kinds of things like, you know, even if you know that you could save all these people, would you still kill somebody in your family? Would you still do it? You know, even if you were presented that the scenario would be better, you could save people. Would you still do it? Some people wouldn't. Even with the facts in front of them. I mean, if this is what you could do, would you still do it? You see, to me, it really depends. Because if you just go based on the literal wording of what you just said, Justin, of (laughs) if you stop the, could you stop the apocalypse if you had to kill a member of your family? I'd do it. I've got some members of my family that I'd be like, yeah, they can go. Greater good and all. Wouldn't even think twice about it. They wouldn't even finish the sentence. <laughs> Damn. Like that, I would, I, yeah. I would actually. Accident- right. With that wording, <laughs> yes, you totally would. <laughs> I, I might accidentally kill a family member and that not even be the, the, like, the solution because, you know, they'd be like, kill a family. And I go, bam. All right, done. So everything's done, right? And then they'd been like, that is only in, you know, the left side of the room. And I'd be like, oh shit, I killed somebody in the right side of the room. Fuck. <laughs> Guess I should let you finish the sentence. <laughs> Damn. It's 
It's all about what kind of family you got. You got a nice family. You don't want to kill them. That's true. That is true. You're right. You took my word and get twisted. You know, I meant somebody you love, damn it. Hey, you said <laughs> somebody kill in your someone family in your family. You like, love. Man, you I'd be saving the world. Somebody you love. I'd be <laughs> the <laughs> hero. Thanks. You thanks know. for taking away my heroism, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, clarifying it as an actual loved one. Shit. See, my version of this movie is like I'd have to choose one of my cats to kill. Yeah. Like, that's that's a sacrifice, too. That's my version of this movie. It's not just, yeah, because that's a sacrifice, too, man. Like, it's not just the person dying, but you have to kill the thing or the person or the cat or whatever we're talking about here now. (laughs) You know, it's it's a double sacrifice, you know? It's Um. the... It's the fucking, uh, who was the character in the Bible? Was it Noah that had both sons? Abraham. Yes. Abraham with Mm. Cain and Abel, right? Um, Cain and Abel was Adam and Eve's sons. Oh, I thought you were talking about Abraham who had to like take his son to sacrifice on the hill. Yes. Uh, Yes. My bad. Yes. Abraham. Yes. That's who I was thinking about. It's it's the Abraham thing, you know, like he would have done it. But, you know, God, whatever was kind of like, nah, you don't have to do that. But, you know, it's good to know that you would have. You would have the faith to believe. Yeah, you would have the faith to believe that you should do that, that even you could even do this. So I don't know. It felt like something in the spirit of that, you know, it's a sacrifice both ways. The person dying and then the person having to commit the act. So while one character was like, yes, I want to do this. The other one to the end was defiant. You know, he really had to come around, you know, because even still killing somebody you love would be hard regardless of the scenario. So. Eh. All I'm saying is that it was tight. If the if the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up to my house and my cats are in the current health and condition they're in and they go, Sterling, you got to kill one of your cats or the apocalypse happens and we'll kill each other one by one until the apocalypse happens. I'd fucking tell them, kill yourselves then. I'll be sitting around in apocalypse with my little kitties. Now, I'm not one of those people, though, that like I understand if they're, you know, if they get to the point to where their health is so bad, you got to put them down. I, I would do the right thing to end their suffering. But my cats are in good health right now, so all you motherfuckers would die. Even though the cat that is sitting on my lap right now just got done clawing the fuck out of my legs. (laughs) Because she decided to, like, spin around and lose her balance and slide down my legs and then go, oh, I won't just slide down and get back up. Nope, I'm going to stop myself halfway down his legs with my claws, then claw my way the fuck back up his legs. I was in a lot of pain. I'd still choose her. You'd all be dead. Come on, Sterling. I'm trying to leave. Look at this face. You couldn't, you wouldn't just clip one of them. Look at your face. Just just clip one of them so I can leave. She ain't dying. Oh, sorry that you two have been friends for 17, 18 years, but 
cats. You got to go, Jastin. Jastin. Uh, no, this cat for three or four is the takes precedent. Hey, I've had her for seven. And you don't uh, have this face. <laughs> you yeah, are not well, a tortie I guess cat. It's, I guess it's good to know where I stand. Fuck. Damn. She just did it again. Daddy, you are trying to make my point very hard right now. <laughs> I'm trying to talk about how I wouldn't kill any of you, and you are physically causing me so much pain. Also, why did I have to bring up the fact that the sound pads were being extra unsensitive tonight when I just moved my headphone cord and it ever so lightly tapped a button, fucking started the theme song? Jeez. Jason's in the middle of clarifying a point and you hear a fucking film roll going off because I moved my headphone cord and it so ever lightly grazed the button. My legs hurt so bad right now. I can't tell you how many fucking times I just got clawed in the same spots too. She'd go, oh, I just stabbed there. Let me use pinpoint accuracy through the jeans to put my claws exactly where the fuck I already clawed you. Cat must be a Shyamalan fan. No cat of mine is a fucking Shyamalan fan, Jaston. Do you think any of these cats have seen a fucking M. Night Shyamalan movie <laughs> in this fucking house? <laughs> Jaston, oh, the last time I watched an M. Night Shyamalan movie... That wasn't this one. Was when I watched The Visit. For that podcast where you fuckers betrayed me then too. Solid. This was better though. This was better than The Visit. Yeah. Justin, The Visit is like a solid shit. It might be solid, but it's (laughs) still made of shit. Man, it was all right. You tripping. It was all right. <laughs> I can't tell you. I found out that that movie, M. Night Shyamalan had to mortgage his own house for $5 million to help get that movie made. And there really? has never been anything that has made me wish that movie failed more so he would lose his house. Oh, my gosh. God, that would have been so amazing. I really that he feel like we're... That terrible movie. And then also lost his house. We're seeing a lot of like where your your morals lie in this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, you're okay if Shyamalan's house was not his house. Yes. He had no place to live. Um, you're okay killing all humans <laughs> to protect your cats. Yes. <laughs> Which no no disrespect to your cats, but you are definitely willing to kill every human in the planet for your cats. I don't understand how either one of those are just things that are now coming to light. I no, I'm feel just like the those... fact that they both happened in the same episode, you know, yeah. it was just like a lot of information about, about it. <laughs> but I kind of feel like those are very obvious aspects of my personality. You're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But maybe for people who who have only just now tuned in, you're getting like a a crash course in things that we've learned over time about Sterling. <laughs> I also like the fact, though, that me going, oh, I'd kill a family member. That's not surprising. 
You're right. That, that didn't <laughs> phase you one bit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'll I should have added way. that one in there. The same week my grandfather died, one of my cats also escaped the house. Not because of anything I did, because somebody who does not live here did not shut the front door properly and it opened up. One of my cats got out. Don't worry. A month later, I got her back. It took a month, but I did get her back. But I was more upset that week about my cat getting out than my grandfather dying. Just saying. Yeah, fair enough. And that's kind of how I view humanity. Because you know what my cats believe? Nazis are bad. I can't say that about all of humanity. I can't even <laughs> say that about most of humanity at this point. Man, that's a solid point. <laughs> but my cats, I can't argue that point. You see this? You see this cat face right here? Complete anti-fascist. Hates Nazis. <laughs> I'm playing the odds at that point. It'd be better if there's at least five Nazi haters out there than a world full of Nazis. Just saying. She's really getting tired of me picking her up like that just to show her face. <laughs> anyway, we've gone way too long. All right. On that note, yes. thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Cinema Slayers Podcast. Check us out on the internet at www.cinemaslayers.com, Cinema Slayers Podcast on Facebook, Cinema underscore Slayers on Twitter and Instagram, Cinema Slayers Pod on TikTok, at Cinema Slayers Pod on YouTube. A shout out to Plug, Me, uh, Plug Migo and Mudo Cho for our theme song and logos, respectively. Give us a five-star rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, it'd really help us out. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your friends' family, tell your family's friends. And most of all, tell those dear sweet mothers because dear sweet mothers love Dave Batista. Telling no lies with that one. Mm-hmm. Just remember, as I said earlier, we here at Cinema Slayers are both pro slut and pro Sydney. And as I always end these podcasts, these TikToks, and these YouTube videos, just remember, according to Justin, Moon Knight is the best picture winner. That is an appropriately timed outro, unlike like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Want to hear some random trivia I found out? The, the little girl from Megan and the little girl from Black Phone are sisters. And I was not aware oh. of that. Cool. Like that's a talented little family of people. Yeah. Which 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 little girl from Megan? The one that the, actually played uh, Megan or the one that actually played the little girl? The one that played the little girl. Oh, okay. Yeah. Little no fact. Megan was actually played by a little girl in prosthetics. I did hear that. Yep. Which is really impressive. She did all of her own like Yeah. Like she stunts was, and whatever. Yeah. She's like an actually like I mean, as much of a professional like dancer gymnast you can be at that young of an age but like yeah yeah that's what she is and then voiced yeah. by some other person yeah but yeah but no, that's true 
So, but um, yeah, thought that was an interesting little tidbit that those two were related. It's not a terrible family. That little <laughs> that little girl in Black Phone was one of my favorite parts of Black Phone. Yep. Yeah. So, there we go. I'm M. Night Shyamalan-ing out. <laughs> <laughs>